Welcome to the Beers podcast, Violin Stories. This is a series about the violin and its siblings, the viola and cello, and those who play them. My name is Simon Morris, and in each episode, I or one of my colleagues will interview an exceptional person from the world of string playing, be they a virtuoso, a collector, philanthropist or violin maker. I'm joined today by Alan Gilbert, former music director of the New York Philharmonic and now chief conductor of the NDR Elbe Philharmonie in Hamburg. He's also a violinist from a distinguished New York family of violinists. Welcome to Alan Gilbert, who is speaking to me from Stockholm while I'm in Cornwall, England. A couple of months back, it did not seem so far apart, but now it seems like an insurmountable distance without the help of the internet. Um, my first thought, Alan, has to be, how are you coping with the lockdown? Or I, I guess in Sweden, it's more of a shutdown, given that the measures don't seem to be so extreme there. And is it a cathartic experience or is it just full of angst and worry? It's actually impossible to to pin it down in a simple answer because there's a whole range of feelings and emotions and sensations and 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 uh, concerns that kind of switch around in in I think not just my head but I think for everybody it's a complicated situation certainly unprecedented um, I find myself feeling a little bit guilty uh, when I'm when I actually think, wow, this is actually really nice to have lots of time with the family and and a kind of hiatus um, um, from the the what can be a grind of working, it's um, it's quite relaxing in a way. But behind that feeling of just letting the days sort of take their course and not being too overscheduled, uh, to say the least, it's uh, there's a constant kind of low-grade angst and, and sense of worry, as, as you kind of uh, hinted at in your question. It's, it's, it's very disconcerting, frankly. I, I, I'm not alone in wondering where this is all going to, to end up. And specifically for music and musicians, the idea of gathering for concerts with, with you know, an audience, things that we used to really take for granted it's it's very hard to know what's going to happen and 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 that's kind of existential on a fundamental level about you know what what where where is music going what is the future of concerts but it's also very practical because uh, you know we need to we need to work we need to earn money we need to um, you know get on with with life it's uh, uh, it's hard to pin down but um, a lot of the time I'm finding myself just enjoying cooking and seeing my kids far more than I'm, than I'm used to, and actually far more than they're used to also for that matter. <laughs> and unfortunately, the, the, the two things that musicians really need, um, well, apart from violin or, or whatever they play, is um, to travel and to gather in large groups of people. So it's yeah. don't, forget, don't, forget, don't forget wine. Yes, yeah, wine. Well, luckily, that, that doesn't seem to be uh, affected uh, too much too much at the moment but uh and i know that um i was talking to uh joshua bell and your your brother-in-law harvey d'souza in the academy of st martin's the, the other day and um just saying they've never done so much washing up in their lives um but also um you know the the tragic side to it all is is of course you know people have been lost and 
quite a few musicians, you know, have, have died from this virus. So it's this horrible combination of, yeah, really wanting to get on with life, but at, at the same time, the, the fear of losing people, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty tough, tough situation. It's a very serious situation. And, uh, you know, I, I know quite a number of people who have died from the, from the virus, and that's uh, very sad, and it's certainly a sobering thought. Um, it's, uh, for me, I mean, I, it's not just me, but it, it's definitely the sort of biggest thing that I've had to confront in my life. And, and it really, it almost feels cliched, but it, it really does make one sort of step back and consider what priorities we have and uh, what's really important. Um, I miss going out to eat and seeing friends. Um, but I have to say, I really am so grateful that I'm at home. I, I have a colleague who is actually not able to come home to Sweden and he hasn't seen his family in a month. Um, and, uh, you know, they're all, they're different degrees of hardship, I guess. And uh, it really does sort of force one to focus and, and uh, think about what, what it's all about. Sure. Well, going back to the days when we could actually um, meet up with each other and um, get together, you, you grew up in New York um, and, I guess everyone in your family played the violin and both your parents were in the New York Philharmonic um, and your sister Jenny played as well. Um, I, I, how was life in such a violin dominated family back, back then? It's, it's like, it's like uh, people ask me, you know, how could you grow up in New York city? What was that like? And, 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 the fact of the matter is that that's what I knew. So it didn't seem strange to me, but for people who grew up with a backyard and who, who played in the street with their friends, as a matter of course, the idea of being in an apartment and having to be accompanied as a kid when you go out to the park uh, is, is incomprehensible. But for me, that's what I lived. And it's a little, a little bit that way with, with the whole violin mania that, that I think infects our, our, our family. It's, it's, um, it's what I knew. Um, I started to realize, I guess, that it wasn't how everybody, I thought everybody played the violin uh, when I was really, really little. Um, and then I <laughs> figured out that it wasn't that way. Um, but it's, 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 it's definitely true that, um, you know, going back to my uh, grandfather, my father's father, he was a violinist and a conductor for that matter. And my father is a violinist and a conductor. And so, I guess they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but um, even farther back than my grandfather, there were country fiddlers. My, my dad is from Tennessee and uh, really from the backwoods uh, of Tennessee, the family had had uh, country fiddlers uh, around and that's, I guess what they did for, you know, one of the things they did for entertainment. Um, but it became a profession and a kind of obsession and, um, it was uh, sometimes pretty chaotic in the, in the house. We didn't have a huge apartment uh, when we were growing up, and but there were four basic areas, and there were very often uh, times when all four areas were filled with a different violin player playing whatever you know he or she was was working on at the moment. <laughs> it, was, it must have been hell for our neighbors. That, I can't imagine um, how that must have how, how that must have sounded. Yes four different pieces being played on four different violins in four different rooms. 
But um, I, I guess you kind of thought, you know, as, as a child, you know, of course you get bossed around by your parents the whole time. Um, but when you started um, as chief conductor of the New York Philharmonic, of course, the, the tables were turned and you were on the podium being able to boss them around. But were both your parents in the orchestra when you started? My father had left the orchestra by the time oh, okay. I started as, right. as music director. He actually played his last concerts, I think, in the, a year or so before I officially took over. Um, I, did, I have conducted uh, orchestras where he played. He, he would sit in the section with, with um, orchestras I, I conducted from time to time, but it was my mother who was still in, uh, a member of the orchestra when I was there. And, and that was a, certainly an unusual situation, um, to say the least. Uh, but I, but I have to say, I have to say that, I have to say that um, there were so many things that I had to think about. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a challenging job, and and uh, you know, not not just the pieces that you have to conduct. Uh, just there, there are lots of layers to to what it takes to be the music director of a big orchestra like that. So, frankly, the mom issue, if I. I, uh, that that's even <laughs> doesn't sound right because it, it wasn't really an issue. But but that that whole area um, really very quickly took its kind of rightful place, um, you know, a little bit off to the side. Because if I had allowed myself to obsess about the fact that my mother was sitting over to my left, um, yeah. it would have it, it would have just been a distraction. Um, and luckily, she was playing well, and she wasn't. Uh, you know, an issue in terms of, you know, being a problem that, because that could have been awkward. Like if she had so been a, you know. If it heckled you maybe from the, from the violin section. Would have well, she was, you know, <laughs> she was, she was the last person to do anything of that, that kind to, to me or to anybody for that matter. But <laughs> she, um, she was a very beloved colleague of the other musicians and had never been a troublemaker. So um, I think they, 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 they understood that it was, potentially awkward for her and uh um yeah every, everybody every, it was you know it really was like a family in in many ways we uh, was it a surprise to be appointed because you had leonard bernstein there before you, i mean it's an amazing amazing pedigree that you're you're following and 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 footsteps that you're following in but but often at least in the uk i think homegrown talent is not always appreciated so you couldn't have been more homegrown than both parents in the orchestra living in New York. Um, and yeah, um, I, I was homegrown. I appreciate it. I don't know. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but uh, it's, I said from, you know, from the very beginning that if I had a dream to become music director of the New York Philharmonic, and I guess on some level I must have, it wasn't a dream that I really allowed myself to express or to, to really believe in. Because just the idea of becoming the music director of a major orchestra is, is um, you know, obviously in some sense, it's a dream that I guess all directors have, but it was a dream that I never really dared to dream because it, it's so unlikely. Uh, certainly for me, with my background growing up around the orchestra, there was no way to to expect it um, and so much happenstance comes into these the way these things play out in life um, I felt lucky to do it and um, it was it was you know jumping ahead maybe a moment in the conversation um, there's a kind of newness and and a freshness that you you look for um, uh, 
enjoying a new situation and paradox. And it was, it was fresh and new and challenging and all that. But I remember distinctly that the very first slide I did with the New York Philharmonic strangely felt like I had been around the orchestra and I, I had, I knew the orchestra and they knew there was a sort of a well of goodwill. It was an unusual chemistry from the beginning. I've never been on a blind date, but the first uh, rehearsal with a new orchestra must be something like a blind date because you don't know the person really. You know that they're a person, uh, but you don't know what the chemistry is going to be like. And, and that's very much the case with, with uh, conductors and a new orchestra. I, I'm never more anxious in my conducting life than when I'm meeting a new orchestra for the first time. Um, because it must be something like, like a blind date. Um, the chemistry with the New York Philharmonic was unusual because um, what you need is a sense of goodwill and you know, more often than not, it's there, but you don't know for sure when you're meeting a new orchestra. How does your approach differ when preparing a piece for the orchestra compared to the violin? Because many of the considerations must be the same. I mean, getting to the spirit of the music and getting all the details right, like tempo and dynamics. But every musician in the orchestra will want to craft a phrase in their own way, you know, the oboist or the flute or whatever. And I guess it's a delicate balance to strike between allowing the freedom to the musicians, but also maintaining your own vision of the music. I mean, that, that question, I think, really very beautifully suggests the crux of the matter when it comes to conducting. And that is that it's, I think it is important to have your point of view, have your sense of how the music should flow, um, have your sense of the tempo, all that, uh, but also engage and empower the musicians to, to use their full capacities as musicians. And it sounds paradoxical, it sounds uh, impossible, but it can happen. And when it does, you know that somehow that's what conducting can and should be. That is to say, when everybody is so in the sweep of things that it's not really clear who's leading whom, and and um, it it's it's a it's a weird thing because you know if you're in the orchestra, you definitely feel subject to the will and the whimsy of of whoever is conducting. But when it's going right, it's such a beautiful thing because nobody feels as if they are being limited on the contrary you feel as if you're being liber liberated and that's a wonderful feeling that i think many orchestra musicians have had sadly it doesn't happen um often enough um, but that is the goal that's what we shoot for is this idea of, of everybody being able to give fully of themselves and and still fit together in a unified flow um, that's difficult how to do it i couldn't tell you but that's that's the that's the quest that's what we're that's the holy grail of what we're least I think most conductors are searching for. And how can you prepare for that? I mean, obviously, when, you, when you're preparing a violin concerto, you know, there's a huge amount of technical um, matters to, to get around. But when you're preparing to conduct a Mahler symphony, I mean, there are so many strands to it and so many aspects that you have to think of. Um, you can't really practice bowings and fingerings like you can as a violinist. So, so how do you practice the technical side of, of making sure that the trombone comes in at the right place and so on? Well, it's at, at a certain point, I, when I was starting out, I remember I used to actually practice uh, uh, how my hands would move. I would, you know, make the gestures. I would look at myself in a mirror. I would um, 
I would move my hands sort of in the in the quiet of my own own study. Um, I don't do that anymore. Uh, I don't practice by conducting by air conducting. Um, the thing that you need to do is know the music and you have to learn the music. And what does that mean? Of course, you have to learn what's there. Uh, you have to know the text uh, on, on, a, on a kind of literal basic level. Um, but then beyond that, how the instruments interact with each other, what the harmonies mean, what they feel, the stronger sense you have uh, of how the music should go, um, the, the more inevitable the gestures you use in front of the orchestra will be and um it's i it's this becomes a kind of philosophical almost spiritual question um i actually feel that it's not about individual personality at the end of the day um but that possibility of inevitability i kind of call it a cosmic um, course that the music must take only can happen if your individual take on the music is unbelievably powerful. So it's this weird kind of uh, mm. sort of bizarre formulation um, of needing to be unbelievably invested as an individual in order to let it go and allow the music to take over. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's, uh, that's the beginning of a long philosophical discussion that I would love to continue with you and have, but it's very, I mean, it's, it's a very elusive subject finally. And, um, and uh, there's so many variables and there's so many, so many forces at play when you're dealing with an orchestra of 80 or a hundred people um, who are reacting each in his or her own way. Um, it's, yeah. uh, it's, you know, one, one, this is a little bit of a corollary, but I mean, it happens occasionally that I will do the same piece of music in consecutive weeks with different orchestras. And I think it's pretty clear that I don't completely relearn the piece or rethink the way it goes from one week to the next, but it's, it's remarkable sometimes how different those performances can, can be even within a short span of time. Of course, my interpretation, my sense of a piece will change if I say have 10 years between performances, but you wouldn't expect that much of a variation if it's just you know five days between the performances. Uh, but the fact is that my interpretation only it's it's like a it's like a, something that you need to add water to in order, in order for it to uh, to be what it's supposed to be. Um, and you know my call it interpretation needs the input and the participation of an orchestra. And so if it's a different orchestra, it stands to reason that the chemistry will brew a slightly different uh, potion. And mm. and um, um, you know, Furtwängler described it as um, as a river, you know, always the same river, but always different. You know, never mm -hmm. exactly the same, but essentially the same, same body of water. Uh, I think that's that's pretty apt, actually. And how much of that can you leave to the night, to the performance itself? Because I know with um, in, in the day when I left college, I used to do quite a bit of extra work with the London Symphony Orchestra, and some conductors would come along if it was Chike Four, they'd say, "Well, the orchestra knows this backwards. We'll top and tail it," and basically just conducted on the night and and see how the um how it went and sometimes you got an amazing performance that way but sometimes not um and 
the rehearsal process can only take you so far, of course. And I, I know that from young, seeing young players, violinists, say, in competition, they, they'll rehearse something to a very high standard in the practice room and just take what they've rehearsed and put it on the stage and, and reproduce it, but without a feeling for the, the, the atmosphere of the night. And how, how much does it change from what you achieve in rehearsal to what, what you achieve in, in, in a concert? And how, how do you get there? How do you, how do you create that atmosphere? Well, there's nothing like the electricity that can happen in a concert. And it's very rare for a rehearsal to, to reach those, those uh, musical and emotional heights. Something is special about uh, performing for an audience. And that's particularly uh, timely to discuss now when we can't have audiences. Um, it's, there's, a, there's some kind of... Uh, intangible something that happens when there's the meeting of people in a space and the musicians are offering something and the audience is receiving it. You can, you can tell how important an audience is uh, when say it doesn't come to life. There's some nights where you just feel like you're not reaching the audience and there's not that kind of, you, you know how it is like people in theater who do a show eight times a week will say, you know, oh, that was a good audience or this audience, we, you know, they were dead or whatever. It's a, it's, um, it's, uh, it's something that I think we all understand, but it's very difficult to, to describe. Um, I, I, you know, in a way you don't have to plan for that because um, it's very rare to go full bore in a rehearsal. You save something uh, for the concert. So necessarily, um, there will be an added dimension, an added frisson, an added, an added uh, electricity when there's when there's there's an audience. Um, I find myself thinking as I'm saying these things, you know, when there's an audience, I'm hoping that we're able to, to find that that again. But interestingly, I've done a couple of performances for empty halls in the last weeks in Stockholm because it has been possible for orchestras to convene and and play concerts that are streamed on the internet, and. I think everybody felt the same. It was surprising the extent to which we felt there was a real concert, even though there was no, nobody in the hall except the musicians on stage. Um, uh, I remember feeling keyed up and, and, uh, and uh, excited in the way that I feel before a, call it a real concert. I mean, these are real concerts after all. Uh, that's how it is today. But um, we, we all kind of marveled, you know, wow, that, that, that really had that same kind of uh, energy that, uh, you know, the old concerts that we used to give for audiences had. Um, so there's, it's, maybe it's a, something, it's a construction in our minds, finally. And is it, is it a very different feeling when you're waiting to go on to play a violin solo from when you're waiting on, I, I know you don't, you don't do much violin playing these days, but you, you do, you have played the Bach double a few times. And uh, in my, with my knowledge, you've probably done many other things, but um, how different is the, feeling before you go on to play the violin from going on to conduct i mean is it more nerve-wracking um, more nerve-wracking playing playing an instrument or well I, I it's it's true that i haven't been playing playing so much violin these days you know 90 some percent of, at least of my of my time as a musician these days has been as a conductor but i've played quite a bit maybe more than more than than uh you or other people might realize i i have a pretty regular chamber music schedule um and for me it's a different kind of of 
anxiety before I play the violin now because I'm not, I don't have that backlog of, of condition. I'm not practicing regularly. I literally go months without touching an instrument and I'm able to pick it up. And if I practice for, you know, regularly for a month, I can get some sort of semblance of, of, you know, muscle condition in the hands, but the habits, the kind of automatic, I remember, you know, playing now when I've gone through in these last days, I've actually touched the instrument a lot more because I have the time for it uh, being at home so much. But I remember I play pieces that I remember used not, not to be an issue. I didn't even have to think about where the, the fingers would go. And now I really struggle to make sure that the fingers go down, of course, to, in the, to the right place, but you know, in the right order <laughs> and on the right <laughs> string and, you know, basic things. And it's, it's, it requires a lot more conscious um, activity in my brain, things that should be sort of effortless and, and uh, automatic aren't. Um, so I get anxious in a different way. Um, but at the same time, I, I think in a way, if I may say so myself, I think I've also improved in a way because I, I'm able to use kind of a, I don't know it's, if it's just experience or understanding of how, how performances go. I don't get nervous about sort of the other things, if you will. I, I, in a way, I'm also able to focus more on the violin playing um, uh, because you know, just trying to be aware of what other people are doing, listening to, to there's so many levels of, of the performance. Um, I'm happy that I've been able to play violin as regularly as, as so I you have. Probably you probably work with most of the great fiddle players these days. And do you, when, when they're standing there playing, do you ever have that feeling that, Oh gosh, actually that's a direction I would love to have gone and gone in myself or. I, you know, if I, if I were a better violinist, I, I, you know, can imagine really making a life as a musician. I, I think that finally wasn't my, calling uh i'm able as a non-violinist to do very very well as a violinist if you see what i mean yeah. uh considering my, my dad used to say that he said oh i'm one of the best non-violinists he knows um, <laughs> <laughs> um uh, i think it was a compliment um he, but um i i you know i think conducting has suited me well but i love playing the violin and when i'm touching the instrument and actually feeling this production of sound in my fingers that's so gratifying um, at the highest level when it happens as a conductor you get that same sense of sort of one-to-one -one connection with this minute sculpting of sound and that's what i look for that's when conducting really gets fun it's more obvious when you're playing an instrument and especially a string instruments where you're touching the instrument you can feel the feel the uh you know the strings and the bow and the vibration all those things it's just so gratifying on a tactile level um yeah. i um i definitely um every time i play i say to myself i wish i were playing more yes yes and last time we met was in hamburg and um the elbe philomony the the new hall there is, is relatively new and is it beginning to take on 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 a a character now because at first it's it, it's a new building isn't it but it hasn't got history it hasn't got the the the, the historic um character that, that some some concert halls have and uh, how how is it feeling now in that new hall? i think i think interestingly um you know the the hall was so 
it was such a notorious project from the get-go and you know it was so long in the making and it became such an expensive project and it was, there was no shortage of controversy uh during the building about financing it and and uh, contracts and all that uh that's water under the bridge uh the hall is open and it opened as an icon already um acoustically what's been interesting is now it's five years that the hall has been open it's very much as as a as a new instrument a new string instrument the sound has changed and it takes you know a couple of years of playing for a brand new violin say to start to find its voice to to mellow as you know of course better than anybody um and it's very much that way with the hall and and uh toyota the well-known acoustician who who um, did the sound design in this hall said that from the beginning he said give it time it will take a few years for it to actually start to settle in and and the sound as this as the as the materials soften as as they sort of settle into themselves as the building because the building is obviously not a static structure but it has mm. it, it moves and it breathes and the concert hall must move and breathe um it it, it um it uh it is changing and um i'm i'm enjoying the sound i think uh, it feels um, warmer uh it feels as if it's more responsive uh when i started conducting i mean I, this is this has this interrupted season was my first official season as chief conductor there um but it's over the last couple of years that i've been conducting there regularly um i i have really noticed a shift um and there's so many the interesting thing about acoustics is that they they exist obviously as a physical kind of um kind of they're kind of absolute qualities of acoustics but they're also emotional psychological qualities and the way the hall i think brings audiences in and makes them feel that they're part of a part of a um kind of an important event no matter what the uh, program is i think is is uh part of what makes it a great hall it it really is a place where people can gather and and look for great art and um the acoustics are are very very clear and some orchestras say it's disconcerting because you feel that everything you do matters but i think that's a good thing i think mm. the hall has the challenge uh but finally the virtue of sounding the way you play in it yes yeah well that's that's a well well put i think um alan thanks so much. one last thought really which is um once you can travel again and we are we have our freedom back um what what's going to be the first well what's the thing you're most looking forward to um i would like to see uh my parents uh they are alone i mean they're not alone they're in new york city but uh the two of them are yeah. are holed up in their apartment there and um i know for them it's it's sad and frustrating not to be able to do what they're so used to doing which is jump on a plane and come visit jenny and harvey and leon or or kaisa and me and my kids in 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 um in stockholm uh it'll be so nice to be able to reconnect with family and friends um i I wonder what's going to happen in terms of travel. I have a feeling that the expectation uh of of having musicians run around the world constantly will probably shift a little bit. It may, you know, may 
you know, normalize after a number of years, but I think it will take a number of years. My guess is that there will be less travel. I think touring is going to, for orchestras is going to be um, slowed um, to say the least. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm a, I, I love to travel and I love to go to different places and meet new people and hear new different languages and, and just having the feeling that we can be connected as a, as a world is, is something that I really miss. And, uh, uh, I hope we can come back to some semblance of normality and, uh, and, you know, without destroying the climate, um, and, uh, going, to, going back to, to the old way of doing things in the wrong sense. I, I hope that it's possible for uh, us to, you know, find our shared humanity, um, very soon. Well, thanks so much, Alan. It's been a real pleasure catching up with you. And I look forward to seeing you in person soon. Indeed. Yeah, very much. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate your asking me to, to speak, Simon. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. A great many thanks to Alan Gilbert for those fascinating insights into conducting. In many ways, Alan epitomizes the wonderful international and inclusive nature of classical music with a Japanese mother, an American father, a Swedish wife, um, a German conducting position, a sister who leads an orchestra in France. This cosmopolitan musical theme continues in my next episode from the other side of the world in Sydney, when I will be speaking with music director of the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tonietti, and principal violinist, Satu Vanska. Satu was born in Japan, um, where she lived with her Finnish parents until she was 10 years old. She then studied and worked in Germany until arriving in Australia. Both Richard and Satu are, of course, virtuoso violinists, but they are so much more. Richard also composes, creating soundscapes with film, amongst many other things. And Satu can sometimes be seen singing um, alongside her violin playing. Uh, recently, she performed in London with Barry Humphreys. Thank you so much for listening, and I do hope you'll join me for this next episode. This podcast is brought to you by J&A Beer and the Beers International Violin Society. If you would like more information, please visit beers.com. <laughs>